This is Kim Burns with What's the Story. I'm here with Joanne Steen, who is the author of We Regret to Inform You, a survival guide for Gold Star parents and those who support them. Hi, Joanne. It's Kim Burns with What's the Story. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm doing well, and yourself? I'm fine. Joanne, I uh, found your book, We Regret to Inform You, to be absolutely fascinating. I understand it uh, has not been released yet. That's correct. It comes out um, It comes out on May the 14th. I'm excited. So this is your second book? Yes, it is. My first book was entitled Military Widow, A Survival Guide, and it was published by the Naval Institute Press in 2006, basically right at the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Well, I think that our listeners would be very interested in finding out a little bit more about you and why you wrote this. I know that you're a behavioral health counselor, consultant, public speaker and instructor on military loss, as well as a gold star widow, which I'm assuming was sort of the impetus for writing your first book. That's true. So uh, so can we talk about, um, if you don't mind, talking about what happened, uh, how you became a widow, and then how that led you uh, to become a military instructor, if that indeed was... uh, the, the chain of events. Surely. Um, it goes back to about 1989, and I'm originally from New Jersey, and I came down to the Norfolk area for about a six-month assignment with the Navy. And while I was there, um, I met and married the first handsome naval aviator that asked me. And so we had a lovely military wedding with uniforms and swords and all that. And um, tragically, about a year and a half later, my late husband, Ken, Ken Steen, was killed in the line of duty when the helicopter that he was piloting exploded in midair. And we lost a crew of seven that day. That was June the 19th, 1992. And um, at the time, our world was basically focused on three things. It was focused on moving. We were going to move in two weeks. We were trying to get pregnant. And he was anxiously awaiting the promotion list because he was up for promotion. And it all ended. And I, obviously, it's it's beyond devastating when you lose a spouse. But what your book really talks about is the difference between people who lose a spouse and people who lose a spouse that uh, is a member of uh, one of the uh, military groups of you know of the United States. And uh, were you from a military family at all? We had strong military roots. My father and all of his brothers and sisters served in World War II. My brother, by now, now is a retired Army colonel, colonel, but he was in the Army. And so we were raised with an appreciation for the military. Um, With that said, coming down here and working um, and seeing seeing basically the Navy and the Marine Corps in action was um, really was an eye-opening experience for me. And after the crash, I chose to stay. Now, I, I really wonder, because when you talk about the statistics in your book, it's amazing how few people, um, considering the population of the United States, how few people really enter the military and how few of us really understand the military. I mean, I think this is uh, the kind of book that, that so many people should read, not just people with a loss. But let's talk a little bit about what it's like to be uh, you know, a civilian who doesn't understand this. Uh, we're a little bit of outsiders to a degree, no? Um, it's, it's good that you bring that up because um, with this particular war, the global war on terror, as it was called, beginning with 9-11, essentially 
a little bit over 4 million service members have served, um, which represents basically one half of 1% of our current population. We could contrast that with Vietnam, where basically just a little under 9 million had served, which was around, at the time it was 2% of our population. So we have the military and the civilian sector really operating on parallel tracks, but not in the same world. So it's so interesting that you talk about uh, Vietnam and that it was only 2% of the population mm -hmm. because it seems like so much more when you look back in history. Uh, I, maybe just because it was such an unpopular war, I don't know, there's so many yeah. reasons why uh, there are so many negative things about it, but it seems like there were so many losses. Are there just that many people that go into military uh, duty and lose their lives? Yes, that's true, but if we look at the Vietnam era and the time that we were at war there, we have to remember that um, in Vietnam, basically, for every every three soldiers that was, that was wounded, one died. And now what we're looking at is basically for every seven soldiers that is wounded, one died. So what we have is we have more wounded soldiers, which translates into less deaths. Right, but with the wounded soldiers, it's sort of a different category because there's... <laughs> so many things that impact these soldiers when they return that. It, that's really, that's your next book, Joanne. Uh, l let's talk about uh, how young service members really are and why that is. You, you write in the book that uh, 30 years old and young are 66% of the total active duty force, and 25 year olds or younger is 50% of the enlisted active duty force. I mean, in a way, that's not a shocking uh, piece of information because we know that young people, particularly when they're looking for educational opportunities or what have you may turn to the military. Uh, but, you know, it, it's still impactful that so many of the lives that are lost are uh, uh, youthful. That's true. You know, it's been said that the military is at one time it was a young man's game, and now really it's a young man and a young woman's game. And when you think about it, you know, they're young, they're, they're very well trained, they're fit. Um, and, you know, when, when you're in that 30s, 20, I'm sorry, 20s, 30s age range, you think you're invincible. So what you have is you have, and that's what you're supposed to be thinking at that time. So you have a population that's young, well trained, they feel they're invincible. And what I've noticed, which is different with this war, is there really is now an open desire to serve country. And so why do you think that is? Why do you think there was a change? I mean, obviously, when the draft ended in the 70s and because of the you know, negative reaction to the Vietnam War and, and there was so much rebellion toward the military and so many horrible things were happening in the country at that time. I mean, it'd be great to think that the young people of this country are patriotic and do feel like it's not just a job, it's, it's a, a duty and all this sort of things that you yeah. talk about in the book. Yes, and I think a lot of that has to do with 9-11. And, and so many times, maybe it's a, a direct thing where they'll say, well, I joined because of 9-11. But that was, that was, what, 16, 17 years ago. Let me mm -hmm. do the math here. And um, 17 years. But yet, I've heard people, in fact, I was just flying home back into Norfolk, and there was these two service members sitting behind me, and they didn't know each other. And they were talking about their particular service branches. One was Army, one was Air Force. And one of them talked about why he joined, and he said, well, it was a family tradition. And the other one said, well, I joined because I just wanted to do something for my country. And I was really taken back by this. In fact, I was, felt kind of bad we were landing because I wanted to hear the rest of this conversation. Yeah, that's a, good, uh, that's a good seat to be in, eavesdropping on that. Yeah, you know, you know, my ears perked up. 
But you just say, yeah, I just wanted to do something to serve. And, you know, service members, they don't have to do a lifetime in the military, but it's just now, it's, it's thing, it, the, um, the pendulum's changed, and that now military service is looked at as basically an honorable profession. In fact, it's looked at as one that is great prestige, according to the most recent Harris survey. Well, I think it does have great prestige in addition yeah. to the incredible things that you learn. I mean, whether you're flying airplanes or, you know, you're out on aircraft carriers or, or what have you. I mean, the skill sets are, are really amazing. Um, I want to tell our audience more about the things that you've done in this book. The book, again, is called We Regret to Inform You. And, of course... Uh, the reason that you named the book is that nothing good comes after somebody arriving at your door and uh, telling you, we regret to inform you. Uh, I know you've, uh, this is firsthand experience, but uh, is it, that's just a part of the military code of that is how they're going to arrive at your door and that is what they're going to say and then they're going to go from there. Can we elaborate on that? Sure, I can. And I've, I've had a pretty active role with the casualty process, um, actually going back to the first book. So I've had the opportunity to train a lot of casualty officers and chaplains. And when the, when the military makes notification, it's done by the service branch that your loved one was a part of. And it's usually someone who is above rank of, of your loved one. And it's usually two, definitely one, de- usually two. And they wear, they wear, um, you know, they don't come in casual uniforms. They wear Class A uniforms. And basically, they're acting in the official capacity of the service branch. And they're there to identify who you are. Usually, they ask to come in so you're not standing outside. And they, their job is to break the news and tell you that your loved one has indeed died. And they'll provide you with any information that they have available. Um, but it's, it's definitely it's factual information. So what happens to families is that you're basically, you're there, and military families never expect their loved ones to die. You know, we don't send our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines out the door thinking that they're going to die. We may worry about them, but we don't think they're going to die. So what you have is, in all likelihood, you have this unexpected death. After all, you're, you know, your service member's young, well-trained, well-equipped, but thinks he's invincible. Um, so you have that notification. You have no hands-on proof. And in this age where we want proof, you really don't have anything you can hold, see, feel, touch that belonged to your loved one that said, this awful news is true. Your casualty team will stay with you, um, depending upon if you're the primary next of kin, and they'll stay with you definitely for a time at that day. There's usually a chaplain there. And then usually the unit of the service member is going to come in and help keep the loved one company and provide them with with the, the things that they need, whether that's, whether that's food, whether that's assistance with gathering the kids up, telling the kids, whether that's picking up relatives at the airport. Um, they have all the support for basically through the military funeral and memorial. Right. Uh, in the book, you really talk a lot about the fact that your child may have been killed most likely uh, in a foreign country, in an area of the country that you don't have access to, in a situation you can't control, or like you said, you are are not in a position as the parent, as the unfortunate gold star parent, to gain that information until the military can gather it for you, which is such a lack of control. And 
so uh, it, you talk a lot about that and explaining to parents how to try to cope with those facts. Can you tell our listeners uh, some of the highlights of, of what you've outlined? Sure. And one of the things with parents um, is that, first of all, no parent expects to lose their child. That's just not the way the world works out. And when parents hear something bad has happened to their child, whether the child is an infant, a teenager, or a grown adult, the first thing that generally happens is their, their parent genes kick in. And they feel, they feel a really strong need to go and protect their child, take care of them, be with them. And they can't do that um, for lots of good reasons. One is time. The other is geography. It may have been in a foreign country. It may have been a very traumatic death. So parents end up feeling very isolated and very frustrated because they can't do anything to help their child, and that's just their instinct. Right, and also uh, a lot of parents have the reaction of this isn't real, because again, you can't. There's nothing you can see, touch, feel, except except your own pain. Right, and at that time, you know, it may not even be um, truly an awareness of the pain, because um, usually when you see casualty person, when you see military personnel, and you know, in uniform, seeing at your front door, you know, it's not going to be good news. Mm-hmm. But there comes a certain amount of time where that shock, that denial. Um, it takes a long time for that news to sink in, you know, the, that provides you with some tolerable doses of it. Um, and you can, you know, if your child deployed regularly and um, where they're gone for periods of time, you develop a set of coping skills mm-hmm. so that you know, they're, you know they're in another country, you know they're in another part of the world, and you want to think, well, Maybe this really isn't true. Maybe he'll come back. Maybe this is a mistake. Maybe he's on, you know, maybe she's on a, you know, a secret mission. Um, and very often when the unit does come back, parents have a really pronounced grief reaction because that, that shows them that, the, you know, their child isn't there. Right. Well, yeah. they the last bit of hope is gone. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, they hold on to that. Right. I, and- I was talking to a mom who said, who was actually doing, um, she was, she was reading the book, she was one of my beta readers, and she said, she wrote back in the margin when she got to that part about the last bit of hope is gone, and she said, she goes, she wrote in the margin that she had gotten the deployment list and went through, I think it was all, you know, 3,000 names just to make sure her son wasn't on it. Ugh, it, it's just, it's so, it's so hard to believe how many people go through this, and uh, you, throughout uh, the book, in the end of each chapter, uh, before you sum it all up, you talk about lesson learned. And for example, you talk about your child's death as being of countless losses for you. And uh, of course, that's true because it it, it, it really never goes away. Uh, it, it's, uh, like you said, unnatural. Right. What, um, what all survivors do, but I think particularly with parents, is it becomes a challenge for them to accommodate that loss into you you know into your life you never you know you never get over it you don't you know you don't um people say you got to get on with your life that doesn't happen you move forward but you move forward with a level of grief that essentially you can live with mm-hmm. and the grief that won't interfere with you finding some happiness and some joy as you move down that you know loss and grief doesn't have to be the end of the story um, it's just that the, the military grief that they experience is really, you know, it's really quite compl- you know, complicated. Now, there's, I think there's a, a, an upside and obviously a downside to 
being in the military and losing a child to the military, uh, obviously there's something wonderful about feeling like you are part of a, the, the military family, which is so tight knit. And so it, it's, I mean, obviously it's important to our country, but for the people that in it, it are in it, it means everything. Uh, but there's also an alienate, alienation because you're not your child. You weren't in that experience. So you can't right. firsthand explain to even yourself. And I, I find what was fascinating about your book is you really are so helpful to that gold star parent because you go through and you have them ask themselves questions. Was your son an only child, an only son? because maybe they can't explain to themselves why it's so horrible. Right. I was just um, I was just teaching up in Canada, and I had a gold star dad up there, and he wrote on his feedback form. He said that he said that I answered questions he never knew to have, he never knew mm -hmm. to ask, mm -hmm. but he felt better hearing the answers to them. And it's things like that because we don't understand that how those other losses play in. We don't understand, you know, we we don't understand how. You know, whether or not you had a good relationship or it was fractured or you're going through something else in your life. In reality, you know, what we know about grief, um, we know from the other losses we've had in our lives. Right. Well, yeah. it, it, it's, it, it's interesting because going through uh, the cognitive impacts, which you do, uh, I think that people, a lot of people say they become zombies or they're just out of it. But... After a while, you start getting worried about yourself. Well, you have no focus. You're, you have a loss of memory. You know, you're easily distracted. But the last thing you do is take care of yourself. So how do you help these uh, Gold Star parents take care of themselves instead of everything going downhill once this happens? Sure. Well, I'm going to tie into our holiday that's coming up because it's a really important holiday for Gold Star parents, and that's Memorial Day. Of course. And um, while the rest of the world, and I, I say this in a broad sense, but while we look at it as being Memorial Day weekend, Gold Star parents look at it as being Memorial Day, which is really the only sanctioned day that we're supposed to publicly remember service members. And, you know, one of the things Gold Star parents take great exception to, myself included, is when I hear somebody say, Happy Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. You know, and while we say that because Memorial Day weekend has now become a fun-filled, unofficial start of summer, you know, we would never think of wishing somebody who lives in the New York area, let's say, you know, a happy September 11th. I mean, that would be unthinkable. That would be, right. that would just wouldn't be something you do, you know. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, it, it has become this holiday, which is now fun-filled. But for parents and for all survivors, one of the things you can do to, to help parents, maybe you don't know any, you know, maybe you don't know any widows or anything, but it's just to show some patriotic display, even if it's, even if it's putting a flag on the end of your curb and having your neighbors do the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's that image of knowing that somebody on that block, they may be strangers to you, but the image is that somebody on that block knows and remembers it's Memorial Day, and that's their way okay, of showing their pride in country. We're showing their respect for the fallen. Well, and I think respect is really the word, and it's it's a it's a helpful word for parents to say. Well, sure. at least people get it. But I want to uh, talk about when th throughout the book you have this little star, and then it says parent to parent, and mm -hmm. I'm 
reading, for example, my baby was only 19. Now, obviously, you're saying to the mother, the Gold Star mother or father, say it out loud because that's what the pain is that they're thinking. My baby was only 19. Right. You know, and there's, you know, it is, they get to say that. Um, and parents, particularly, are the keepers of their memory, the keeper of their children's memory. But what's interesting about my baby was only 19 is that, and, and I, I can remember when I heard that, and I did an almost obsessive amount of interviews with parents. And I scribbled that one down because the baby they were referring to was like a 35-year-old married father. Right. <laughs> but to a parent, it's still their baby. Of course. Of yeah. course. You know, and so what I did with the book is I incorporated, for the, for the sake of the parents, really, these phrases that I've heard along the way that mean something to them, and it's, it just helps them to validate that, yeah, you know, that's how I thought you, they were young, you know, it's my baby. Mm -hmm. And it's not uncommon, um, and I've become really attuned to it, to hear parents refer to their lost adult service member as my baby. Well, let you know, let's talk about that, because... When you talk about Gold Star parents, uh, it's important to remember that in so many cases, it's the widow that's being focused on when yes. the, you know, the quote, son dies, but he has a wife. Uh, he has two small yes. kids. And the attention is going to that widow and the parents are not... I don't want to say overlooked, it's not fair, but they may not be the people that are, you know, receiving enough comfort. Overshadowed. Overshadowed. Yeah, overshadowed, yeah. And what do, what do we do, aside from have people read this book and realize how much how much pain the parents are in, I, obviously the, the widow, widower, uh, is, right. in, is in pain too, but uh, often it's the parents because the, the, the son was young. They may be young. They may oh, have yeah. their own parents that they have to worry about and look after, and then their son is gone, or daughter. Yes, yes. What we do with parents, you know, losing a child is, is just an unspeakable tragedy to a parent. And basically, when there are other parents um, who are in the presence of parents who have lost a child, there's always a reluctance of what to say and what to do. And so rather than put themselves in that place, sometimes it's easier for people, and they don't do it intentionally, but it's easier to feel guilty from a distance than feel uncomfortable in their presence. Mm -hmm. You know, and so that's, that's a real difficult thing. What you can do if you happen to know anybody who, um, you know, who is a Gold Star parent is very simply, you know, is to offer your condolences. And, and in the book I said, you know, when you offer condolences, you know, you can say, I'm sorry for your loss. That's good. I'm sorry for the loss of your son. That's better because now mm -hmm. we've identified the relationship. Everyone's I'm nervous sorry. to do that, Joanne. They're nervous to say yeah. it out loud. I know, I know. But, you know, it's a small price to pay to make these people feel good. Mm-hmm. And also, obviously, to be helpful uh, in the weeks after the funeral and do the, show up, do the things that you would not normally do. Go clean their house, go run errands, do all those things because they're not going to ask you. These parents aren't going to yeah. ask for that help. And so, you know, if you're not a listener, you know, if you don't want to sit there and hear them talk because they need to talk, hey, you know, offer to take in their trash, you know, or cut the grass or do something like that, or, you know, volunteer to take their to get their car to go get inspected. We don't always have to sit and communicate with them if that's not your thing. 
Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when people talk about bringing casseroles at the time of the funeral and things like that, that's great. But you know what? Three months later, give them a bunch of free coupons for pizzas. Right. Um, Now, one of the things we think about is that usually, you know, in our society is that grief lasts for a year. And when you have sudden deaths, whether they're military or civilian, um, a sudden death takes about a year just for the reality of the death to sink in. So both survivors, psychologists alike will tell you that the second year is really the lonely year. Well, because it's obviously people are going to react to the news and they're going to rally around and there's a funeral and people are going to be there for it. And then all of a sudden you're left alone. About three months. Mm -hmm. Now, also in your book, you talk about uh, suicide and Mm -hmm. it is something that is prevalent and is also falls under the category of obviously an unexpected death, a violent death. Uh, right. What we want to talk a little bit more about uh, you know, how much more painful this is because so many of these deaths are violent because of the nature of the work. But obviously, suicide is also a violent death. So mm-hmm. can you can you touch on that briefly? Sure. You know, and a couple things happen with suicide deaths, and the first myth to correct is that the military does consider it a line-of-duty death. Um, And without getting into the regulations and the guidance on it, it is considered a line-of-duty death. When you have your loved one die by suicide, um, you're dealing with not only, let's talk about parents. With parents, they're dealing with the loss of their child, they're dealing with guilt of all forms, and guilt has a long shelf life. Mm-hmm. It's going to be around a while, and it doesn't get talked about. You know, no one comes comes over and says, hey, let's talk about guilt. You know, put the coffee on. Um, but one of the things parents do is is they sometimes they just feel guilty that they couldn't save their child from them, himself or herself. And what I really feel. hate, Joanne, is I hate the fact that you know, the, the stigma that can be attached to suicide makes sure. this even worse. Sure. And, and, you know, the fact is, is that parents feel they failed their child by they couldn't protect him from that. And, and you know, and there is the stigma, and it goes even to, it gets even into the language of suicide. You know, if we say someone committed suicide, usually we use the word committed to mean have some malevolent intent. You commit a crime, you commit a sin. Mm-hmm. Um, a better thing to say is, is that they died by suicide. Right. You know, because this way we're stating the obvious. They died by suicide, by ending their own lives. Parents are shamed by that. Um, But with all that said, though, no matter how your child died in the military, if it wasn't an active AIA in a a war situation where someone's shooting at you and you shoot back or an IED, um, families, all Gold Star families, look to find meaning in in their child, in their service members' um, commitment to country and to service. Now, you also have a, a group called Grief Solutions. And, I do. And Grief Solutions, it's a training company. Uh, so let, let's talk a little bit about uh, this grief being related to uh, the workplace. And what I'd like uh-huh. to specifically touch on with that is whether or not you've looked at the workplace being the military workplace versus the government workplace, which of course can be different, uh, but also a little clubby like the military and versus uh, private sector. Sure. You know, interestingly enough, I spent 10 years in the private sector. 
Um, I spent 10 years actually in corporate America in the technical field. My first career was engineering. And then from there, I transitioned to 10 years with the military as a senior instructor. And what we have is there's no good workplace environment um, where you can feel comfortable with grief. You know, if you are in the private sector, they give you an allotment of time, let's say, and it depends upon what the relationship is. You know, if you lose if you lose a child, it may be a week's bereavement leave or two weeks' bereavement leave. You know, if you lose a sister, well, you may only get three days, things like this. And then the expectation is that you come back to work, and after you've expressed your condolences, you're back up there full of ground. And, you know, the fact is, is that we most of all, and it's not an intentional thing, most of us just don't understand the process of grief, and we're uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. In military environments, the intensity of a military loss is so much greater because the attachments that service members have to each other is as close as family. You know, we talk about Navy family and, you know, um, you know, band of brothers. They have really strong attachments with each other. Well, right. Um, I mean, well, because of training yeah. and because of going out as a unit and because also housing. Sure. I mean, even Navy sure. housing, when you first get in, the, sure. you know, you're, all, you're together all the time. Sure. I'll give, you, I'll give you an example of attachment, and this goes back a long time, but it's etched in my memory, and that's um, when my, my first husband was killed, um, when we were at a veteran cemetery, and what the guys did, I knew these guys really well. You know, they were all at my wedding, you know, a year and a half earlier. And what they did, which floored me, was they started taking off their Navy wings, their wings of gold, and leaving them on the casket as they walked by. Oh, boy. And, you know, they're not good with words. You know, traditionally, men aren't good with words. But they left these wings on the casket. And, uh, you know, that speaks volumes. Oh, yes. It's that type of bond that they have. Now, do you uh, want to talk about how men manage their grief versus women? Please. Please, yes, I'd love to. Oh, good. Um, you know, traditionally what happens is that um, men get the short end of the stick when it comes to grief, you know, because when we think of grief, we think of basically a lot of emotion, very visible emotion, people crying, you know, just looking. You have, they have that look of grief, the 100-yard stare. And essentially, with men, everything in their life has trained them to be in emotional control. You know, from the stereotypes of, you know, walk your, walk your little sister home from school to the conditioning to men are the providers, they're the strength, they're the bedrock of the family. They're the one that's going to be in control. And when something rocks them to the core, like the death of a child, and they lose that emotional control, they feel they failed. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a name for this, and um, these two psychologists had studied this, and they say that there's two ways of grieving. And one of them is called intuitive grief, which is pretty much the model that America's associated with, and that's emotive grief. And you have to see it, and you have to hear it, and you have to feel it, and you hug people, and you eat, and you drink, and you cry, and, you know. And then there's a type of grief that a lot of men identify with, which is called instrumental grief. And people who grieve instrumentally still hurt as deeply, but what they do is they react differently to that hurt. And so for them, if they're dealing with an issue related to the death, they may focus their attention on, well, how do I, how do I get through, how do I fix this problem with the death? Mm -hmm. You know, or men are pretty much action oriented, you know, and, um, and 
so what they'll do is they'll want to take action. They'll want to do something with their hands. They want to be physical. They don't know why they're doing it, okay? But they, they really want to do it. And um, But they really have to find something that is worthwhile and not destructive because that is a much trickier way to way to handle grief. I mean, even if they're programmed to be that way, uh, I you know I know that the thing I would find most challenging if I were a man and we're in this situation is the fact that uh, obviously you want to understand what happened and understanding right. that is going to help the grief subside somewhat. And then you talk about in the book that in some cases you never know what happened. That's true. I mean, I find that to be mind-boggling for any parent under any circumstance. Any circumstance, right. That's true. Oh, it's just, it's really horrendous. It's, this is really, I, again, I, I think everybody should get out and read We Regret to Inform You for, for so many reasons, which is, which is coming out in, in May. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, talk, Joanne, about death and the, the spiritual quest. I mean, is there ever a point where some of these Gold Star parents think, well, this is my child's destiny? I mean, they had done something great. They had, you know, joined the military. They had done something. They had served their country. It was their destiny. Uh, is, is this a way to cope? Do you find that some of the people that you work with have turned to spiritual ways to manage their grief or not? Sure. And the spiritual component of grief is one that's very real and often gets overlooked. You know, we don't realize often when we talk about grief that it's going to force you to go in and ask yourself the unaskable whys and search for meaning. And in that search for meaning, which is so really important because the search for meaning allows us to make our peace with the loss. And, um, you know, and in searching for meaning, some, some people find it that it's their destiny. Some people think, no. Some people think, well, you know, my child was, was protecting America. You know, some people, just the ways that their beliefs, okay, um, their family structure is strongly going to influence how they, how they find meaning in that death, you know. Um, and also, how the service member died is really important because how the service member died is going to impact the amount of support you get, which is going to impact your working through your grief. Mm -hmm. For instance, if your, you know, if your son or daughter died on base in, a, in, a, in an accident, you, you may find that your loss isn't, isn't perceived as important as, as the soldier who died um, you know, in combat. Right, because of the drama of it and all, yes. Sure, you yes. know, but the fact of the matter is it gets down to, you know, and I'm not discounting combat deaths in any way because that truly is the ultimate representation of, of you know, defending, and sacrifice. defending the country, yes. protecting defense. Um, but I know in the case of my husband, he was on a training mission and and when when he was killed, and people have said to me, you know, every time they say, well, he's a hero. And I've corrected them and said, he's not a hero. You know, he died doing his job. And what his job was, was to be proficient, okay, in flying that aircraft. Because if the tasking order came from the president that they were going to go and fight, they, we, will, we all want him to be ready. And that's, but that's what his job was. He signed up to do those things to help protect America. Right, and to be and real so, professionals at their job. Sure, absolutely, and to be good at it, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what, you know, so that's what, that's how I found meaning in it, and that that's what his job was. Parents struggle, 
just looking for answers to why their child died um, can really be like a lifelong struggle, but they need they just have to find one. Shouldn't they have to? I hope they find one that basically they can make their peace with. Right. You know, because, say closure. I just said make their peace with something that they can live with. Right. Because that's not uh, a consuming you, question. You talk about how grief is so unpredictable, and it is, and you don't know how it's going to hit you or which way or sure. what have you. Uh, so finding that peace that that can take forever can take forever. It can. And one of the differences with military loss is that you may feel really comfortable with with the ending that you've come to accept, and then five years down the road, um, somebody from the squadron or the unit comes up to you and wants to talk about the loss, and they start telling you things that change the ending to your story. Mm-hmm. And now, that ending that you've come to accept, you basically have to go back and... and Regrieve that. It's like, well, that's not, you know, but that's not what it was. And you find new information. And that's, that causes you angst too. It's like resetting your computer again, you know, where you've got to go back and you've got to reset it. Well, and, and under trying to understand it again. That must be so yeah. frustrating. Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, it, it is. And like the amount of, um, the amount of times that happens, it's not a common occurrence, but it's not uncommon. Mm hmm. And so um, but what happens always is it's usually unexpected. So you're really caught off guard when you, when you hear things like that. Now, how did you research this book aside from your group that you run and having direct contact with parents on so many different levels? Was it through that or just through your years of working with military personnel? couple things is what I did. Um, reached out to the government, and they were, again, very helpful with it. And they, they had been helpful with the first book, and they recognized that the subject in and of itself, uh, I think, and, and essentially the reputation that I had was one that I was going to produce a product that would be helpful. So I was able to, with, with that in mind, they were able to connect me with casualty officers, with, with chaplains, with leaders, um, and interviewed them about their experiences with it. Um, I, because I did not have children, because my first husband was killed, we, um, I interviewed, I would say, a, just an obsessive number of parents because I wanted to get it right. Uh, and I was afraid that not having children, you know, wouldn't, I wouldn't have the experience, but it worked out well because being a blank slate in this case, I was able to take in everything they told me. And I'm assuming that most of these Gold Star parents were more than happy to talk to you. Oh, yeah. Right. And then the last thing with a book like this is to do the literature review and to search through the you know, professional works on what type of research has been done. And that was pretty surprising because there's not a lot of longitudinal studies done, not a lot of long-term studies done on the impact of military loss either on family members or on returning forces. And actually, some of the best research I found was out of Israel. Out of Israel? Why is that? I don't know. I could only think that maybe some of these studies were started at times previous when, you know, when um, they were faced in moments of, of conflict and war. Hmm. Boy, Joanne Steen, this is quite a book. We regret to inform you. Next month, everybody needs to take a look at this. It's so informative regardless of whether you've served in the military or know someone in the military. I think as Americans, we all need to know more about what goes on and who is really serving our country. Uh, 
even if you don't have a, a friend or a neighbor, uh, we, we should be more aware. I, I just wanted to throw this out to you, Joanne. It was uh, really an eye-opener for me reading this because when I was uh, a, a two-year-old, I was living uh, in San Diego on the Naval Air Force Base and my father was killed. And, really? Yes, and well, I'm sorry not, for the loss of your father. Well, thank you, and it's uh, that's another conversation. But yeah, oh, I just yeah. I just want to say that the ripple effect goes sure. through generations. So this really this could have just touched you and your family. Really amazing, really amazing, and I don't think that at that time, so many years ago, they had anything for the widows uh, to do but pick up the pieces and go home to wherever that was right. originally, particularly right. if you were stationed in some place like San Diego and weren't from there. So right. this is invaluable. Uh, any, th anything else you want to tell our listeners? Certainly let them know how they can get the book. Sure. Um, the book's available. It will become available online um, through my publisher through Amazon, through Barnes & Noble, and it'll be available in, in um, soft copy, hot print, um, by ebook, and also an audio version is going to be made. And I would just like to point out that the last four chapters of the book are dedicated specifically to the friends, family members, relatives, coworkers, and professionals who are looking, who are, will be in contact with Gold Star families. Essentially, it tells them what they need to know, what to expect, what to say and do, and how to really be helpful and effective. And may I end with a good note, good note story? Please do. Okay. As I mentioned, um, I've remarried. It took me a while to remarry to get it right. But um, about 10 years or more, I um, was at the post office, and I ran into a squadron pilot that had flown with my late husband. In fact, back in back way back when we were all good friends together. He and his former wife, and my late husband Ken, and myself. So I got to talking with him and learned that, um, unfortunately and sadly, his marriage had broken up. And I told him, I said, "Well, you know what?" I said, "I was a busy travel schedule." I said, "A couple weeks, I get home, I'll call you. Come on over, cry in your beer." And um, I did. And five years later, we got married. No. <laughs> so my husband Tom has the distinction of being in both of my weddings. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a beautiful story. He was a swordsman in the first wedding who welcomed me into the Navy with a slot on the behind and uh, in, in the best of naval traditions. And he worked his way up to the, um, to the male lead and to a speaking role. So our philosophy is we really believe in recycling. <laughs> That is so good, Joanne. That is such a beautiful way to end this interview. Joanne Steen, we regret to inform you, a survival guide for Gold Star parents and those who support them. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Been wonderful and so enlightening. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. This is Kim Take Burns. Care. This is Kim Burns with What's the Story?